doing and take a look at the laptop or smartphone playing this podcast. Tucked inside is a small lithium-ion battery. We only get to have laptops and smartphones because of them. They're tiny, they're rechargeable, and they last a long time. In many ways, they're more environmentally friendly than the batteries we put in our toys when we were kids. Inside those batteries are tiny amounts of two elements, cobalt and graphite. Your smartphone might only have five grams of cobalt, about the weight of two pennies but the battery wouldn't work without it. Here's the bad news. Someone had to dig that cobalt out of the ground, and that someone is often a quote-unquote artisanal miner in the Congo, working in horrifying conditions. The entire trip, we were sort of, you know, slightly mouth agape at what we were seeing. Um, had no idea that, you know, even though we had read about and sort of had seen it described, and I love the term artisanal miners, um, which, you know, it makes you think of Brooklyn cheesemakers, but, you know, these hand, these guys are still mining by hand like digging underground. In September, the Washington Post released the Cobalt Pipeline, an investigation about the Congolese miners who dig up the mineral by hand in the Congo. Two days later, they posted the second part of the series on pollution from graphite in China. On this episode, Blake Nelson talks with reporter Todd Frankel, photographer Michael Chavez, and videographer Jorge Ribas about the first part of the series, Cobalt in the Congo. We'll hear about their reporting experiences at home and abroad, including how they armed miners with cameras and what happened when they sat down with the secret police. And later in the show, a moment to celebrate our 50th episode, we've put together a short segment highlighting some of our favorite episodes and moments from the last two and a half years. You don't want to miss it. I'm Daniela Vidal, and you're listening to the IRE Radio Podcast. When a news organization produces a really incredible piece of journalism, it's easy to forget just how much work went into creating it. It's also easy to forget that preparation for a project as complex as the Cobalt Pipeline starts long before the project itself. Several years before Todd Frankel was at the Washington Post, he was a reporter for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. After a man in Aurora, Colorado, shot and killed 12 people in a movie theater, Todd wanted to know where the shooter got his bullets. He'd ordered it from this online ammunition seller that had a St. Louis address, supposedly. Um, and what I'd done in that story was trace back exactly who was behind that ammunition sale. And that was documents and talking to people and non-forthcoming people all along the supply chain. Todd is not, by nature, an investigative reporter. Actually, I should just let him say that. I am not, by nature, an investigative reporter. But he got curious and started digging. So much investigative reporting is like following something, right? Follow the money or, you know, following, I don't know, well, following, following a cobalt. Um, so there was a, a continuity there, a sort of interesting, um, from following something from point A to point B to point C. That, that was sort of helpful, having done that before. Flash forward to early this year. Todd's editors got to wondering about lithium-ion batteries, the same batteries in many of the electronic devices that we own. Because those batteries are reliant on two key minerals, cobalt and graphite, his editors asked, where does that cobalt and graphite come from? Another reporter named Peter Wariski started looking into graphite. Todd began researching cobalt, specifically where it's dug up in the Congo. He quickly came across his first surprise. The dark secrets surrounding mining in the Congo 
were not exactly secrets. There had been a fair bit written about the problems with cobalt. Um, it just had never crossed my radar or most people's radar. It was, it was out there, but you just had to go out there and look for it. And it was done mostly by um, advocacy groups um, like Global Witness, Amnesty, small groups I've never heard of. This was not like a new problem. It's a problem that sort of bubbled up every so often and just sort of went away again. This is one of the great services journalism can offer. You find a problem that's not exactly hidden, but that nobody seems to know about. A problem that seems far away, but might be connected to anyone with a cell phone. So you start brainstorming ways not just to tell a true story, but a true story that's as riveting as your favorite novel. For The Post, that meant quickly pulling in designers, a photographer, and a videographer to start talking about how to tell a story that would be impossible to ignore. Jorge Ribas, a videographer on The Post business desk, was one of them. You know, a lot of times we'll do where someone will write a story and then we'll do kind of a video that fits there. Maybe the video's uh, like, a, you know, maybe a mini documentary or something like that, or just uh, an interview that kind of sits at the top of the page. But we wanted to try something that was a little more immersive. The Post also enlisted photographer Michael Chavez. I had been to Congo before. It was a while ago. I was there in 97 to cover the fall of Mobutu. That kind of helped out, too, so I kind of knew what to expect, and I could talk to uh, to Todd, the reporter, about what I had seen there on previous trips and, you know, let him know how difficult it can be to work there. The first step was to nail down how cobalt dug up in the Congo ended up in our phones and laptops and which companies were profiting off of it. And these supply chains are incredibly opaque and secretive, um, and not necessarily because they want to like hide the origins, but because they're, it's a competitive industry, they don't want their competitors to know who's supplying who. There is some publicly available information um, that we were able to find. Uh, the cobalt um, producer that we sort of focused on, CDM, uh, Congo Dongfeng Mining, uh, had published um, and, and, and does publish annual reports. And um, when they issued some bonds, they, they published another report that listed their biggest customers. No one had a full view of the, of the supply chain, but you talk to enough people, put enough pieces together, and eventually you could get the full spectrum of, from beginning to end. But that, that took a lot of work. The more Todd looked, the more he saw companies he recognized. Apple, Samsung, Tesla, Amazon. But he didn't call any of those companies. Not yet. He needed to see firsthand where the supply chain started. And then I guess it was probably like in March when we started to realize that this was a real story, um, but then logistics were just going to make it very difficult to do. This, you can't just hop on a plane and go to the Congo and start reporting. People have these romantic notions that going to, uh, to foreign countries and making pictures all a National Geographic or what have you, you know, is, is this lifestyle that they want, that they want to do. Uh, when in fact it's really, it's really, really hard work, and 80% of it is logistics. With the Congo, it might be even higher than 80%. You have to be invited into the country by someone there. I think it was UNICEF that um, signed off, like invited us into the country, uh, which they were, uh, quite frankly, reluctant to do just because they um, want to be on the hook for us if something had happened. Once we got that, and then we, it was, it's a ridiculous amount of, amount of paperwork. The directions on the website for how to get a visa were different than what you really needed to do. And actually, um, we needed to get permission from the um, communications ministry in Kinshasa, in Congo, and have him sign off on it before we could even go. When asking the Congolese government for permission to enter the country, 
Todd was selective but not deceptive about how he framed their work. In the letter, the way we framed it was um, we said we were going to look at the socioeconomic conditions of the mining industry in southern Congo, um, which is true, right? But we didn't say that, you know, we were specifically interested in child labor and, you know, other abusive conditions. But the socioeconomic focus um, was true. That language would come back to haunt him. More on that later. We hired a fixer, a terrific guy named Caleb. We had to send him, I think it was like $500 U.S. to get this permit from the ministry. And then we got this ministry letter, presented it to the embassy. The embassy said, oh, no, what you really need is this other thing. And actually, at one point, it didn't look like we were going to actually be able to pull this off. And then finally, at the last minute, they're like, oh, yeah, everything's cool. We'll give it to you. You know, um, And it was, it was sort of a surreal scene, just... And this is, you know, before we do anything, this is just like getting in the door. For added drama, this wasn't exactly the best time to be an American in Congo. An Air Force veteran had recently been in prison there and accused of plotting to overthrow the Congolese government. He was eventually released, but when he got back to the States, he filed the lawsuit saying he had been tortured. In addition, the Congo was preparing for a national election, except it looked like that election might not happen. It is still not close to happening, by the way. Many in the Congo were accusing the president, Joseph Kabila, of illegally trying to hold on to power. Many officials, therefore, weren't exactly over the moon about the thought of two Americans running around with notebooks and cameras. But in the end, Todd and Michael got the green light to go. And because of the mining industry, getting a flight into a Congo airport was very doable. Getting out of the airport, less so. So we get there, and the woman's looking at her passports. So she's like, well, in order to get out of the airport, um, you have to have uh, someone sign you out. And uh, well, we were like, well, we don't have anyone to sign us out. Um, we'd arrange with a local NGO to pick us up, but I don't think they were expecting they would have to, like, again, vouch for us and sign for us. And so, but they wouldn't let us out to go get them. So we were in this sort of catch-22 where we're stuck in the airport, um, not able to get signed out, but not able to go out to find a person to sign us out. Eventually, after some arguing, they were allowed to find somebody who would sign them out. So now they're in the Congo and outside the airport and still nowhere close to being able to start reporting. For me, it was very difficult to get any photography done because I was prohibited from making any photographs. Uh, If I walked outside without all the proper credentials and signatures and stamps of your various ministers and bureaucrats, I would be arrested on the spot, and, um, and who knows what would happen, especially with this anti-American paranoia going on. He's not kidding about the credentials and signatures. Even though they had a letter from the National Ministry of Communication and Media approving the project, they now had to convince a host of local officials to literally sign the back of it. Uh, we're in Lubumbashi, and we drove up from Lubumbashi to Kowesi, which is a different province. So we needed to get um, five different signatures on this letter, and that was like sort of our... Um, our passport within country to do what we needed to do. And so we spent the first three or four days just meeting with government officials, explaining what we were doing, and pleading our case and praying, hoping that they would say yes. Some of the meetings went well. Todd was able to turn one meeting with the governor into an incredibly helpful interview. But then the real resistance we got, um, which the only point where it got truly sort of hairy, was when we met with the um, ANR which is an acronym for their um, security service, basically their secret police. Remember that Air Force vet who said he was tortured? He was being held by the ANR. And when Todd showed the letter explaining the project to an ANR chief, the chief was not on board. 
And when he saw the term socioeconomic conditions, um, he took that as criticism of the current president and said, there's no way I'm letting you do the story. There's just, I'm not letting you do a story that could perhaps be seen as criticism of the current president. He actually left his office that day um, with him saying, um, oh, listen, I'll talk to my, my, my boss in, in Kinshasa in the capital, but I don't, you know, I, I'm not approving this. I don't see why this would be good for, for Congo to have the story out there. And we left the office that day honestly thinking that the story was in many ways dead. We'll return to Todd and Michael after this short break. Hi, everyone. It's Daniela again. In the last two and a half years, Irie has talked to more than 60 journalists and produced more than 17 hours of podcasts for you. We love making this show because it highlights everything that Irie stands for. At news outlets big and small, we see reporters of all ages, backgrounds, and skill levels holding people accountable. Here's a look back at some of our favorite stories, moments, and interviews. You can find links to all of these episodes in our show notes. None of us expected to find a slave island, but that's what we found. It shouldn't depend upon a, um, a journalism professor and uh, students to... Um, point out what's wrong with, with, with a bad case. It was interesting. It was the first time I'd ever gotten the cops called on me for a reporting trip. If I go out and, and find, you know, provable facts and put them in a story, I can, uh, I can have an impact and I can get people to change policies and uh, I can change people's lives. And it was really a eureka moment for me. Wonders of the modern age, man. Even even peasants have their cell phones, right? And sometimes they keep them charged. It was very much bigger than, hey, here's just a bunch of schools in the books that were either never completed, never finished, or don't function. It became what I found out to be what we call outright lies. So the day that we did the interview was literally the first time she heard the, the details of what happened that day. And it was, it was very painful for her. It was painful for all of us. It was the hardest interview I think I've ever done in my whole life. The scale of it surprises me. The, the absolute brazenness of this scheme, even by Chicago standards, is just, uh, it is surprising. You know, it's, it's complicated. I mean, when I'm in there and struggling with these things and the ways I'm seeing myself change, I'm also aware the whole time that I'm just getting really good stuff and um, that I have a really good story on my hands, a story that I knew while I was there was going to be, you know, one of the things that when I'm on my deathbed, I'll look back on and will be one of the best stories I probably ever did. I'm George Varney. I'm Sean Shinneman. I'm Brett Murphy. I'm Aaron Pellish. I'm Daniela Vidal, and you're listening to the IRE Radio Podcast. And we left the office that day honestly thinking that the story was in many ways dead. Back in the Congo, Todd and Michael briefly considered trying to do the story without approval from the secret police, the A&R. We did learn um, that that would have been a bad idea because everywhere we went on the ground, amazingly, there was somebody from the A&R. Um, there, there's plain clothes, like in the background type guys, but um, they're pointed out to us every, every step along the way, like, oh, there's a guy from the A&R. Oh, that guy's from the A&R. Um, they have eyes everywhere. Luckily, that local governor Todd interviewed did want the story told, and he went to bat for the project. In the end, the A&R relented. But this process had taken a lot of time. 
They were only in the country for two weeks, and Todd estimated that they were only able to devote around four days of that to straight reporting. If you're short on time, and especially if you're reporting in a foreign country, it's not a bad idea to find locals who want your story told just as much, if not more, than you do. Todd and Michael found that in a group of miners who had organized to fight for better working conditions. The entire time we were there, it's kind of funny, we were traveling around in a um, minibus that seats probably eight people, but we always traveled packed to the gills with like 12. Um, so we, they had their own driver, uh, another woman who just came along for whatever um, reason, their leader, and then like six miners who just wanted to be part of this effort to help us out. Um, and they were a great resource, talking to them, seeing things through their eyes. Even with their local escort, they still faced resistance from guards posted at mines. We got turned away from one mine where they, they just refused. You know, we're not going to argue too much with the guy with the gun. Um, another time, we, you know, we got into a shouting match with them where they're going back and forth. And this is mostly between the, the miners who brought us along and, and, and the local guards. Like, you know, we have nothing to say in that. We wouldn't, wouldn't know what to say. But the miners were pleading our case. The mines they finally saw were jaw-dropping. And when I say mine, we're not talking a big industrial mine that you can walk around in. We're talking a hole you can barely sit up in. The, the regulations that they do have uh, say a fish, I think they can go down 30 meters, so vertically. But once you go 30 meters down, and supposedly that's the limit, although many miners told us that that's not enforced, they then extended for hundreds of meters, um, in some cases under, horizontally underground as they follow a seam of cobalt underground. And that was what was astonishing to us. That's also what made it so dangerous, is these guys are working without supports. You know, there's no wood, wood scaffolding around that you would see in a modern mine or, or some way of preventing a cave-in. That's nine stories, straight down, and then several football fields across. The miners are digging by hand. In photos, they're barefoot, no helmet, and sometimes they're children. When they get to a really large boulder or rock or something, one way to soften it is to heat it up. And so they would start fires underground. Um, and that would lead to, uh, well, you know, carbon monoxide poisoning. And, and that was a frequent way of, of dying. They sleep under there sometimes. You know, they, it's easier for them to work overnight. And rather than climbing back out and sleeping up, uh, on the, up top, they would, they would just sleep underground, take a nap underground, and they continue working. So it was just astonishing. To be clear, it's not like a mining company is ordering these men underground at gunpoint. The miners have the opposite problem. There's nobody at the top of the hole looking out for them. They don't work for one specific company. The miners simply collect as much cobalt as they can and then sell it for a few bucks at a marketplace. Because of that, the miners are called, with no apparent irony, artisanal miners. And I love the term artisanal miners, um, which, you know, it makes you think of Brooklyn cheesemakers, but you know these hand these guys are still mining by hand, like digging underground. An estimated 100,000 people are doing this in the Congo, up to 40,000 maybe kids. Michael heard stories about guys digging up their living room floors and entering mines from their homes. The collected cobalt is then driven to the gates of a mining company, which has deniability about where the cobalt came from. But the average Congolese citizen knows where it came from. Local doctors treating horrifying new health problems know where it came from. And families who've lost husbands and sons to cave-ins, fires, and suffocation definitely know. All of this meant a lot of miners were very, very open to talking to Todd and Michael. They were just determined that this story had to get out. So we were incredibly appreciative of what they did. 
Their participation was not limited to interviews. They also carried cameras to places the reporters could not get to on their own. It was risky work. The guy who took the, um, our iPhone down to the, to the river to capture all the people washing the rocks, you know, there was no way for us to get there. Um, we were you know, we t- not only turned away, but it was also um, clear to us that, uh, as they said, you know, any unfamiliar face down there immediately causes alarm. Reading the series online is also a master class in how to balance text, video, and photography. That's not easy to do. It's really difficult to, to think in both mediums when you're on assignment. Um, to think shooting video and to, and to think shooting stills is like going in forward and reverse at the same time. And the, the two are such different disciplines. My method is usually one day to concentrate on video and forget that I'm even a still photographer, and then the next day do the opposite. The most striking video they were able to get came from a miner who strapped a GoPro on his head and descended into one of those holes. When I put that on his head and, and he went down there, he, you know, he was excited to do it. I think they were kind of thrilled with the idea. So, you know, we were wondering, okay, are they going to be concerned that the authorities are going to come after them? And, but, you know, you never see the person and we never say who it is that got that footage of the, of the river. And, um, you know, the inspector was this guy's name that went down into the mine. Uh, he seemed to really have no concern. He said, look, I'm with the association. This is what we do. Jorge, the videographer, did not go to the Congo with Todd and Michael. So he cut the footage together back in the U.S. I knew that if we could get, uh, you know, the scenes of, of this mine and what it looked like to descend. I mean, a photo could, I think, could, could show that. But I really think that the video, just like the endless going down into like descending into this pit, um, captured that in a way that I don't think photo can. There was a lot of moments where you just heard breathing that I wanted to put in there. Just like that, that claustrophobic feeling for these, for these people that are doing this job. And then there was just some really, like, there was one moment, I think, where you just heard the tapping of the, the hammer. It was just kind of haunting, I thought. But then there were some photos, I re- there was a photo of Michael's from the Congo, where you see this landscape. I think it's one of the first photos in the piece. I mean, it, it, it looks it, it, like an alien landscape. Um, you'd see the smoke in the background, and it's just this turned-over earth, and it, it's, it's unbelievable. It just felt, it felt very uh, organic, I think, in this process to determine, like, okay, this one, yeah, let's go with video, or this one, we go with photo. But to experience the full multimedia package, you've got to use a computer or a smartphone, which makes almost every online reader, myself included, complicit in this exploitation. It gets even weirder. The GoPro that Miner used... It was powered by a lithium-ion battery that could have been running on cobalt from that very mine. And all of the men Todd and Michael were with? They owned cell phones with lithium-ion batteries. How did those miners react when Todd told them where their cobalt ended up? They didn't know what the cobalt went for. Um, they knew that it was valuable, and they knew that the Chinese really wanted it. Um, but they didn't know that it was actually in their cell phones. Um, and it was kind of cool talking to some of them. Um, and it sort of gave them a new appreciation for what they were doing. Whatever use it goes to, like, it's the same to them. Like, they just want to get paid and get treated fairly. But they were sort of tickled that, you know, they, unlikely enough, had, had a role in this global supply chain that was powering the, the, the best tech in the world.
So after two insane weeks, they had their story. Todd and Michael returned to the U.S. Michael had already traveled to China with Jorge and Peter Wariski, the Washington Post reporter looking into the graphite supply chain. Those three had collected some stunning stuff about graphite pollution in Chinese villages for the second story. Now Todd and Peter could begin approaching a long list of companies about what they had found. Getting adequate responses would ultimately take way more time than either had spent abroad. And so, yeah, it took about four to six weeks of going back and forth. You know, when you're making accusations like this or presenting a story like this, we felt like it was incredibly important to go as far as we could to hear them out and see exactly what they had to say. And then there was this back and forth of figuring out, you know, sometimes they're very forthcoming, sometimes they, you know, issued a blanket statement. We were like, are you sure that's all you want to say? Um, and then, so this verifying and re-verifying different aspects of that. Todd also realized he was going to have to bring up the lithium-ion batteries found in Kindles. Because, in case you forgot, Kindles are owned by Amazon. Amazon is owned by Jeff Bezos. And Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post. There's been a lot of speculation about how, you know, Bezos has been as an owner of the Post. You know, what, what is his finger on the scales? Are we afraid of him? And quite frankly, no, it doesn't change anything at all. If anything, we feel like a higher degree of responsibility to really press on that point to make sure that that's, you know, something we addressed. Because, um, you know, Kindles are not that interesting a, a product anymore. Um, and, and so we could have probably left them out um, and no one would have even noticed if we weren't owned by Bezos. But knowing that we were owned by Bezos, <laughs> we knew we had to do Kindles. What was interesting to us is that being owned by Bezos didn't buy us any special access to the, within Amazon because um, we got back one of the most flattest, boring statements from them possible. I mean, we wrote them back and we're like, uh, are you sure this is all you want to say? Because they didn't neither confirm nor denied any problem. They're like, are you sure? You know, this is the Washington Post where we just want you to know we're owned by the same guy, you know, basically. Um, and they're like, you know, that's all they wanted to say. The Cobalt story launched at the end of September. The story about graphite in China followed two days later. Hidden victims of an opaque supply chain were suddenly being seen by an enormous audience. As far as I know, they haven't suffered any um, repercussions. Um, but, you know, I think they also realized that uh, it was a risk that they had to take. I mean, there's, you know, people uh, over there sacrificing lots, you know, to get stories out. Readers have often asked Todd, what's the best way to respond to this? You know, companies will respond to what consumers want. They will respond if consumers keep the pressure on him, keep bringing this up and keep asking questions. And that's why Apple, I think, got in front of this, didn't deny anything, didn't, you know, try and make excuses, said they were going to work on this going forward. Now, the question is whether the pressure will keep on them so that it actually does happen. That does not mean launching a boycott or demanding companies stop buying cobalt from the Congo altogether. That could end up hurting those miners even more. And that's what's sort of interesting tension, too, is, you know, what is the fallout from an article like this? Because um, they don't want to stop working. They just want to work in better conditions. They, they need that work. They would do other things perhaps if they could, but they, you know, they, they take pride in what they do, and they need those jobs. And so the worst possible outcome would be for something like that to end entirely. But they did recognize that they needed to be treated better, deserve to be treated better, and, and can be treated better. It doesn't need to look quite so shocking. As a result of their reporting, Apple announced it will treat cobalt as a conflict mineral, which means the company will pay closer attention to where its cobalt comes from. Other companies said they had no idea this was going on, but vowed to improve working conditions. 
Todd said some readers are working to buy some of the miners a machine that will test the rocks they dig up for cobalt so the miners don't have to rely on their buyers to find out how much they should be paid. All of this is happening because a group of reporters were willing to fight for a story, a small crowd of sources were willing to tell their story, and a news organization was willing to back them up. You know, I mean, you don't see too many outlets doing these in-depth investigative pieces um, or even traveling abroad to do them because the costs are very high. But, you know, you see a lot of places aggregating it online, these kinds of stories. But it's really important that we continue to go and be on the ground in these places and experience and photograph it and see it firsthand. Thanks for listening. If you're a fan of the show, you can help us reach new audiences by writing a review or sending your friends and colleagues a link to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Next time, we'll be talking to the reporter responsible for shining a light on Donald Trump's not-so-charitable giving. David Farenthold of The Washington Post will be taking us through his investigation and talking about what the future might look like for journalists covering the president-elect. He can often be secretive and deceptive, but he's not very strategic about it. Uh, his, his MO has often been to say something that is untrue or misleading to one group and then to move on to a different audience before the first audience realizes what, it, what has happened. I think the, the thing for him that's going to make being president hard is that the audience doesn't change. You're every day judged by your actions, not just by your words. The IRE Radio podcast is recorded in the studios of KBIA at the University of Missouri. Blake Nelson reported this story and drew our episode art. Sarah Hutchins is our editor. That's it for this episode. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm Daniela Vidal. Podcast. Podcast.